my whole life, I felt like I was like smart enough to get out, but not smart enough to draw too much attention to myself. I felt like that was like a conscious choice at 12 where I'm like, okay, cool. Let me make sure I stay in like my B, B plus range. You know, I don't want to pop up too high and start getting like people noticing me. I just want to like sneak under the shadows and under radar and get out of here. And I was like so concerned that I was going to like, so many times random people would just die. Like I had a lot of family members that were like shot. It was always kind of this fear that like, you know, there's a statistic that was like basically like as a black man in Camden, New Jersey, like you're most likely to die between the ages of basically like 17 and 25. So on my 26th birthday, I had a big party. This week, we have two guests, Keith Kirkland and Kevin Yu, the co-founders of New York-based wearable tech startup, Wearworks. In part one, we covered the challenges they both overcame in their early years. Keith was born into a loving family, but faced the challenges of growing up in one of the most violent towns in the US, Camden, New Jersey. Keith describes himself as always feeling an outsider, but as a high performer, he saw education as his way to escape the streets of Camden and avoid becoming just another statistic in the list of black male deaths under the age of 26. Kevin was born in South Korea, but faced the culture shock of moving to the US at age 10 and navigating his way through school during a time his family was in what he describes as survival mode. While both Kevin and Keith grew up with economic scarcity, each enjoyed an abundance of support and love in their family environment. We cover their parallel paths to studying industrial design at New York's Pratt Institute. Kevin explains how his love of art, a talent for math, as well as some soul-searching questions from a professor set him on a path to industrial design. Keith unpacks his circuitous path from art to engineering, to selling shoes, to attending New York's Fashion Institute of Technology, to designing shoes and handbags, before finally arriving at Pratt Institute to study industrial design. I think this show demonstrates how persistence, hard work and willpower win in the end. I hope you enjoy the early insights of Keith Kirkland and Kevin Yu. In part two, we dive deep into their experience as startup founders, the challenges they've faced and overcome, and their vision for the future of haptic technology, and a lot more. Okay, Keith, Kevin, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, it was great that you made the time. So before we get into your story um, around WearWorks and your life as founders, I'd love for you both just to reflect on your upbringing and talk about the influence of your parents on the direction you went and just really cover any other influences on your sense of self and your view of the world and the direction you've taken in life. And either if you kick off, Kevin, I talk a lot. You want to go first? Oh, I, I saw on the, <laughs> uh, you'll be going first and then I'll, I'll... No, we don't, we don't have a um, hierarchy here. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, I'll start off, you know, briefly and such. So I was born and raised in South Korea until I was uh, 10 years old. So growing up there, obviously, it was very different. I had culture shocks, multiple culture shocks probably in my life, but my parents were actually entrepreneurs at their mid age. So before that, they were, you know, working. My father worked in an airline and he was doing importation, exportation, and he was managing a lot of uh, people. And my grandfather was actually a politician uh, who actually first started a uh, import, importation of cigars and wine. It was like one of the first guys in Korea that was doing import, importation of wine from uh, outside of the country because Korea was not really doing much of importing uh, back then. Wine from where? From Europe, actually, oh. yes. He was, he was kind of doing this, the first 
you gotta be specific because you have an Italian representative here, so you have to. Think all- <laughs> and we don't we don't do wine in Scotland, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, back then, I, I was so young; I didn't even know what what was going on. But this was all told to me as I got older. It was uh, it was great because you you know I think he became quite successful and he provided for my grandfather you know for my father's family. So from what I know, from the stages that I know. My grandfather's wealth was not really that well used. He ended up divorcing or my grandmother ended up divorcing my grandfather from some corruption that he went through uh, just by, you know, alcohol, right? So she ended up leaving him and uh, having to raise the family entirely on her own. And so my father grew up practically without a father, right? And if he, you know, when they, whenever they went to go visit him, even now, uh, my father passed away, but he still hates him, doesn't talk about him so much. Uh, even though he, you know, provided a really good start for our families, the mid stage was not so clean. So, anyways, after that, my father, I think, had a traumatic experience, and uh, from that, he doesn't drink at all. He doesn't, you know, do anything uh, except like work really hard. And uh, he also, since uh, he started a, a restaurant actually in South Korea, kind of in the food business, as my grandfather also did with the wine. And so on. So he and my mother had like this amazing project. My mom was really into tennis, uh, which I am also into. So she was more like doing some semi-pro tennis stuff. My father was doing some restaurant businesses and doing some entrepreneurial stuff. And then they decided to move to the U.S. And from there, it became really interesting. My sister, I have a sister who's two years older than I am. And uh, she's a, a, you know, she got into the medical field. She's a doctor now. And I, I became an entrepreneur. And when we first came to the U.S., you know, things changed a lot. We were not living in a, a great place as we were in Korea. And, um, you know, we were living in my mom's sister, my aunt's house. Where? In New York, actually. So as soon as we can, we went to Disneyland a lot of times. So like my parents liked the place and they decided to move here. And then um, we just went straight into my aunt's house. What year was that? That was 2010. So from there... So that must have been quite a culture shock coming from... Were you in Seoul in South Korea or it's another right. time? It wasn't even 2010. It was, it was way before that. Um, my sister knows more of the numbers. My memory is more like visual to situations like details that happen. It's not numeric at all. I don't even know birthdays of a lot of my close friends. Yeah, so we moved here and it was like a completely different culture shock for sure. I didn't know anything. And, uh, and especially in New York, I was like, wow, what's going on? So from there was a whole, whole new life. And then my parents bought a house in Connecticut, moved there. Uh, that's where I grew up most of my life, actually. My middle school uh, was slightly spent for about a year in New York. So as we moved, and then we moved to Connecticut. And from there, the rest of my middle school and high school were spent in Connecticut, specifically like around New Haven, Brantford, we moved around. And then from there, I went to college in, in New York. So it's kind of like- It's, it's interesting. We've interviewed a lot of people that uh, moved with their parents from whether it be India, other parts of Asia, or even Africa. And there's a, there tends to be a great pressure from immigrant families on their children to push them into either law or medicine. Uh, so it's interesting your sister went that direction. What did, how did you resist that pressure? That's a great question, honestly. I, I had the pressure, like not even when I was in the US, I had the pressure in Korea as well. Obviously, it's just like a separate... First of all, competition is a little bit different. Korea has incredible high competition for when it comes to academics, just because, you know, everything, the education system is just much more harsher. So when I came to the U.S., the first thing I realized was the relief that I had on schoolwork. I literally didn't go to math class for all of my middle school 
And the first year of high school, I didn't go to any of my math class. I took art classes, private art classes instead. And that's how I wanted to become a painter. And I, I went to like art school and I was like, I want to be a painter. And um, my mother's sister was a painter or as an artist. And my father's sister was an artist, you know, so I kind of came from this art like family, but they knew that they didn't want kids that were artists. <laughs> so they, even though they promoted it and sent me to these, you know, lessons, I, they were like, you're not going to become an artist though. You're going to do something else. This is just a education realm for you to have a full rounded whatever. I didn't know that at the time. I just wanted to become an artist. But yeah, my, I, think, I think my parents definitely pushed. They didn't really, they, didn't, they were very not, non-conventional though, really. They didn't push anybody, my sister or myself. They just wanted us to do what we really love to do. And I think that was the biggest differentiation between my parents and a lot of other Korean or Asian parents out there in the world. And that's where they also put me in art school and stuff. Like, you know, they... They didn't care. They just wanted us to be happy. And um, my sister just happened to <laughs> become a doctor, which was like a jackpot for them. But for me, they struggled a lot. They were like, you should get a job. How did your coming uh, here at a young age, what was your sense of identity? Do you, did you adopt a sort of American sensibilities or did you stay very close to the Korean community? That's a good question. I didn't actually have any Korean friends for a long time. Because New York, I came into a school that was like a very, you know, like there was no Asian students there. So I ended up having to learn English really fast. I, I watched a lot of TV. By the second year I was here, I was quite fluent. People thought that I was born here. But that was actually a really good thing. I didn't have an accent or anything. And then going forward from there, I, yeah, even in Connecticut, especially, right? Like Connecticut is pretty much like, you know, no, no Asian people. So I, I, my sister was the only one. And then we had another family that was Korean that was in our school. So practically it was like two families with two kids that were Korean that were in my high school. So obviously we became friends. <laughs> our families became friends and we ended up going over to their house and stuff. But I, I personally hung out with my group of friends, which were more based on tennis, art and stuff like that. So off the bat, I really like throughout high school, I, I spent no time with any Korean friends at all. Uh, which was kind of a shame because I lost a lot of my culture, but I, I brought it back in, in college a little bit, but still I didn't have any, even now I don't, I wouldn't say I have a really close Korean friend around me that I can speak Korean to and be my cultural self. Okay. So Keith, I believe you're a, a, a New Jersey boy born in Camden. Yeah. Uh, Camden, New Jersey, born and raised. My grandparents were initially from a Glassboro and New Jersey. Funny thing is I just picked up a book called Ellesmere, I believe it's called. And it's about the history of Glassboro and like the Ku Klux Klan. And they have photos of my grandmother in it at like, in like the seventh grade or something. It's like super duper cool. I basically bought the book because there's a picture of my grandma in it, you know, and I guess I'll read it too and see what happened. She eventually came to Camden. She was married and uh, her relationship with my grandfather wasn't so great. He was uh, relatively abusive. And so she took the kids and my, her oldest kid, my uncle, was born with cerebral palsy. And so she took all four of her kids and kind of fled into Camden and basically kind of like started working and building a life for herself there. And so my family kind of grew up, you know, my mother was like six years old in front of the same apartment that like my grandma was living in when I was there and born and old enough to remember it, you know? And so... Camden was a bit tough, you know, like uh, it's a really, really poor city. 
for a, a large part of the time, it's been impacted by like lots of drugs and, and violence in particular. And it's a really small city. It's like we only have about 89,000 to 100,000 residents, but per, per capita, we, we had some of the highest like murder rates and crime figures in the country. And so growing up in that space, it was, uh, it was really, really interesting because uh, the other thing too is that um, my mother had me um, when she was like 17 years old. And so she's basically like graduating high school and I was six months old and she was walking down the aisle with me. Her and my father apparently met because uh, she needed some help with math and he was pretty good at math. And, you know, they got pregnant, not intentionally. And, you know, like, then, you know, it was kind of like uh, my father went off to the military after he graduated and, you know, they got married because he was in the military and, you know, family benefits, all that stuff comes with it, travel arrangements, things like that. And so they got married, had two more kids, have, I'm the oldest, they had two more boys. And then after that, I don't, you know, after that, you know, I basically don't have a lot of memories of my father in my life. And so my mother and my father split at that point. And I think that like getting the whole story now from both of them being a lot older, like it just looks like they just couldn't get along. And, you know, but they had this kid that they had to deal with or these kids now that they had to deal with and they were trying to figure it out and it just didn't really work out so well. But ultimately, my mother ended up raising us on her own for most of my life. And so it was just the three of us. And then my father actually ended up with uh, my stepmother, who he's still with now. And he had four more kids, you know. So I have basically, I have, uh, there's seven of us in total. And I'm really, really close with my brothers and sisters on my, on my father's side. Like, kind of like ridiculously close, That's you know, like, yeah, which is really, really cool. It's kind of like our parents had beef, but like, we never let that get in the way of like our personal interaction with one another. And so I think that like, you know, like, uh, so it's like my family was also like not a lot of men in my life. So I was raised by my grandmother, my aunt and my mother. And so I just have this experience around constantly like what having you, women around. What do you think that female influence on your character and your values has had if you look back on it? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think the the influence was really like more around connecting. I have like best friends from that time. They're still my best friends. You know, I actually saw one a few days ago when I drove past home. And my guy friends, it was it was just a very different conversation. It was like they were kind of like the guys I rode with. Like we played video games, we went to comic book stores, we drew. You know, we ran the streets a little bit, and so it's like they were like the people that I ran with, that I rode with, but they weren't really the people. I was like emotionally building with. So I didn't have any sisters. Well, I had sisters, but they were on my father's side and they were much younger. And so I adopted sisters basically. And a lot of those sisters that I adopted still are my sisters like today. And the connection was much more transparent. It was a lot more, had a lot more emotional depth to it. And then plus it's like a, you know, funny thing is that like, you know, my sister ended up dating a few of my friends. We've been friends for like 30 years now. And so yeah, every now and again, I, I have a friend that's really awesome that she likes. And so, you know, they date and, you know, it would be, it'd be really interesting to hear the story on the guy's side of like what happened. And then I'd hear her story of what happened and I'd be like, hmm, doesn't quite line up. And so I guess when I was younger, I just figured that male on male relationships didn't have the space to be really transparent, emotionally vulnerable and like deeply honest. But the dudes are going to be the ones that like have your back, like when, you know, crap hits the fan. And like, you know, you need like somebody to pull out a bat for you and like start swinging, you know? And so I think that was like kind of like the, the dichotomy that I got was like, my friends were kind of like my 
people that I did my daily activities with, but the emotional connection and the emotional uh, support and vulnerability stuff went through. Uh, you think I call my sisters. Did that vulnerability and that uh, depth of connection, do your brothers share that as well? You know, I, actually, I don't know. So my youngest brother passed away, Damon. He got hit by a car on uh, New Year's Eve in 2008, and he died on my birthday, which was January 18th. But yes, I don't know. And and then my middle brother, like we had like growing up, we just had like, I've never fought anyone anymore in my life. And now that we're older, it's kind of like, it's like water under the bridge. But, you know, like while we were going through it, it's like literally like random strangers on the street that I fought, like didn't fight as hard as me and my brother did. You know, like it was just really kind of like, like we had this nuclear family. And I think that the one thing that my mother did that was really, really awesome is that like, I kind of felt like after like 11, like I was really, I obviously got the math skills from dad because, you know, like after 11, mom couldn't help me with math homework anymore. You know, I'm like, okay, cool. I have to figure this out on my own. But I also, I was like, I was in AP math basically since, you know, like math was like my gift, you know, like I was really, really good at math and I was really, really good at drawing, you know, like I got most artistic in every high school I'd it's ever been quite, in. It's quite an unusual combination <laughs> of skills. <laughs> Yeah, like I remember like drawing Bart Simpsons for chocolate milks, you know, and like I was doing graffiti with chalk with people's names on it. And in one way, it was a, it was a way to keep kind of like, because there was like a lot of bullying and I was like really smart. And I realized that to be, if you're really smart, you have to not be so smart because like if you're too smart, you're a target and like you don't get out of here if you're too smart. And so, or at least if you, so I was like, my whole life, I felt like I was like smart enough to get out, but not smart enough to draw too much attention to myself. I felt like that was like a conscious choice at 12 where I'm like, okay, cool. Let me make sure I stay in like my B, B plus range. You know, I don't want to pop up too high and start getting like people noticing me. I just want to like, like sneak under the shadows and under radar and get out of here. And I was like so concerned that I was going to like, cause so many times random people would just die. Like I had a lot of family members that were like shot, like killed and you know, like my cousin was driving up a street and a bullet goes through her van and hits her two-year-old daughter in the neck. And, you know, like she lived, but she still has disabilities from that, you know, and I have a lot of people who didn't live from their gunshots, you know? And so it was always kind of this fear that like, you know, there's a statistic that was like, basically like as a black man in Camden, New Jersey, like you're most likely to die between the ages of basically like 17 and 25. So on my 26th birthday, I had a big party. Like, <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm, I made it out of the statistic. Like that was like, even when I went home, it was like, like there were guys who made it out. Like they went to the military and then they came home to visit some family members and like someone killed them because they thought they were somebody else. And you're just like, wow, you made it. And then you still ended up not making it. How do you think you're, let's just say in a, an environment in a, in a city like that, that's, uh, where there's uh, economic uh, disparity and the impact of drugs and violence it must be difficult for parents, single parents, particularly like your mother, to ensure that you stay on the straight and narrow and that you don't get dragged into gang culture or affected by the, the circumstances in growing up in that environment. How did she manage to ensure that you obviously were focused, achieved a great education? Mm. And as you said, you, you got to your 25th birthday and, 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 survived yeah just in in terms of as you say you got your friends there must have been pressure peer pressure to be on the street and to get involved in trouble even if you're you don't want to there's there's always going to be that sort of pressure yeah yeah you know like uh 
you know, I have some really, I mean, like, you know, half of my friends sold drugs, you know, and like oftentimes like my playground, I guess, quote unquote, was, you know, like I'd be hanging out on a drug set while they were selling drugs. And, you know, I never sold drugs. I just, I mean, I, I could have always needed the money, but I just felt like I had bad luck. And I just felt like the first person I sell to is going to be a cop and I'm going to go to jail. And to me, freedom has always been way more important than anything. And so I was like, just never went down that path personally for myself. But I still was like hanging out. And I, now I realize that like, I was still just like hanging out on a drug set, like, like eight hours a day, you know, just, just hanging out, you know? So it's like so much other stuff could have happened, like kind of in that space. But the thing for me was kind of like, I always felt like I was born in the wrong place. Like I didn't feel like I belonged here. And so like from 10 years old, I was basically like plotting, like, how do I get out of here? And I'm like, this place is like a black hole. Like once you come in in here, it's like you get trapped. So I was like, okay, cool. There's two ways out, right? You know I mean? Well, there's three ways out. It's kind of like, you know, sports. That wasn't really my thing, you know, like, and I'm like, I'm either going to get out because I'm really smart or, you know, like I'm going to go to the military. And like, I have five best friends growing up. I was the one that went to college. All five of them went to the military. That's how you get out. You just put me in another place and like, get me out of here. And so, you know, like it was, I remember feeling like I was so close to getting out when I was like six months from graduating. Like if you didn't come to my house and hang out with me in my, like in my house, you didn't see me. Cause I'm like, I'm not going to walk and go to some party and accidentally get shot. Like I'm too close to being done. You know what I'm saying? To like have something like ruin my escape now. And I did all my military paperwork. I was all set to go. I took all the tests and I was just waiting on college to see if money came in that would pay for me. And if I would have signed on the line and I would have been military as well, you know, but luckily I applied to like three schools. I got accepted into all of them, like Howard University, Morehouse. I really wanted to go to a historically black university, but ultimately I ended up going to Rutgers because Howard and Morehouse was like, because when you go to a school for minorities, you're not a minority anymore. So there's no support for minorities as much, you know? And so, so I, I ended up going to Rutgers University in New Brunswick because I it was a state school and grants came in and loans came in that were like a lot less. And I'm like, okay, cool. Engineering degree is an engineering degree. Who cares? And, you know, set out for Rutgers. We always ask our guests about uh, growing up with abundance and scarcity. And often there's a, a combination of both. In many instances, we often find that there's great love and affection and direction from parents, but maybe sometimes economic struggles. Can you both reflect on, on that uh, and how you look back at your, your childhood and your formative years in relation to abundance and scarcity. Carol, you want to take this one? I thought we were just reflecting. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Keith, you go next. Okay, okay. So abundance and scarcity, like I think we were definitely economically scarce as far as resources are concerned. We were public assistance, welfare, you know, Section 8, all of the acronyms that like give poor people money to do stuff. That was us. And so there wasn't a lot of resources and those lack of resources. There was a, a bit of a lack of opportunities, I think as a generality. But I think that kind of like where abundance showed up for me is that I kind of like my mother had no idea what an engineer was probably. And she was just like, yeah, you can do it. Like, and then when I was like, Hey, I don't want to be an engineer anymore. I'm, I'm going to go and be a shoemaker. And my grandma was like, what the heck are you doing? you're going to go from an engineer to a shoemaker. And my mom was like, you can do it, you know? And then, then my grandma, you know, she stopped complaining when the coach bag started coming home, you know? Um, it's like, <laughs> oh, you know, 
<laughs> I, I think she has very little idea of what I do now. And it's, her whole thing has been always like a ridiculous amount of support and just kind of like total belief, you know, like even when she has no understanding what at all, what it takes to actually do the thing that I'm saying. It's quite interesting that you're actually doing, you've developed and built a wearables company, which seems to be the perfect fusion between shoes <laughs> and technology <laughs> and an extended sense. Yeah. Yeah. Hindsight is twenty twenty. you know, like, but going forward, there was no wearable technology to build, you know, like one of the reasons that we started this company was because I wanted to work as a wearable technology designer and only Apple and Fitbit had jobs and none of them would hire me. I think the other thing too is that like my mother was always really radically honest and radically transparent, you know, like, like she's told me like very personal things that you should probably not tell your son, you know what I'm saying? Like sitting on a corner at 13, I remember having some really in-depth conversations with her around like, just like her past, like, like major challenges, like major trauma, you know what I'm saying? Like confusions about my birth and how I came into the world and what that meant for her life. Like, you know, like we always talk really, really openly, you know, like even, you know, about like sex and relationships, you know, it was like 11 years old. My mom was like, Hey, look, there's condoms on my dresser. Don't make me a grandmother before our time. I was like, okay. Like that was our conversation around. It was like pretty straightforward, you know, like, and so my mother's always had this ability of just, I've never had to lie to my mother. So I just never felt the need to lie to anybody else. And so I kind of have this radical transparency and honesty is kind of like drilled into me from the beginning because it's just how she was. Now I can understand where you and your brother's fighting was over the condoms. (laughs) 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 Get out of my face. Stop wearing my clothes and don't touch my Nintendo when I'm not home. You know, yeah, it was was real. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kevin, (laughs) abundance and scarcity. Yeah. So I guess the the one thing I really remember when I was a kid is that um, I felt lucky when I was a kid. I think when I was young and I was in Korea and my, my, my family, my parents specifically, they, they, did, they were doing well. And I think it definitely didn't like make me into a better person. I don't think so. But it definitely made me feel like I was important because they built a building in the area where they were living. And we was like the tallest building in the area of the city. And... Um, my grandmother and my grandfather both came from some type of wealth, I, I, I guess. And they built a thing and they started their own companies and stuff like this. And then what happened over time was divorce happened and things got really messy. But my, my father went to the military and he was, before he left, he keeps telling me, it's like, before I left the military, my grandfather ended up owning a couple of real estate properties around Seoul and around Korea. And he, before he went, he said, Grandma, to make sure he doesn't sell any of this stuff because these will become expensive over time. When he got back uh, after a couple of years, he sold practically everything and to you know live his fancy life and left my grandmother with almost nothing. And so this is where like kind of the, the scarcity became a really really big thing. And my grandfather really just kind of became you know a selfish person. And this is something that my my father teaches me constantly is like. He sometimes says, like, you have a similar personality of your grandfather, and this is the worst thing I can say to you. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. So he compares, but he doesn't do it with um, pride or any kind of, like, you know, satisfaction. He does it with a lot of pain uh, and a lot of lessons that, that I can learn from it. To give back to the family is something that's very important to him and something that he never received from his grandfather and, or from his father. So anyways, I think, I think 
you know, when we were like the first ones to have a TV in the area for years, like, you know, everybody came over to the house to watch stuff and to do all these things. So I always like remember growing up with abundance of stuff, but abundance of family and of love and stuff wasn't really necessarily there. And I think that's something that my sister suffers a lot from. She talks about it quite often and, you know, it definitely altered the way that we, we became, I mean, I'm not saying that it wasn't like heartless, uh, but it's just less heartful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, I don't know. So, so that childhood life of, of abundance of, of stuff. And then when we came to the U.S., it became more like the opposite. It became more like, hey, we want to thrive here. We want to we make it on our own. We're going to leave everything in Korea and we're going to start our own thing. You know, like a true you know, immigration life, right? So they did that. They denied a lot of uh, money from my grandmother and from my grandfather. And they just came and just did their own thing. And struggled for a long time, for years, like my parents struggled. And I was like, why are we, why are we doing this? And they're like, well, this, this is, you know, this is what we're doing now. And then over time, they built up their careers and built up their lives and became better. But at that point already, the stage of my life when I was 10 years old until I was you know, 15, 18, throughout high school, until I really like went to freshman year of high school, we were really like like in survival mode, honestly, I would say. And then once after they bought the house and once after the businesses started finally kicking in, I mean, they, they invested everything into the businesses. What was the business? So my mother started a couple of things. I mean, they, they're retired now, but my mother started more in the beauty products. So she was at retailers and she you know bought a, bunch of, a couple of stores and sold things. My father was still kind of doing stuff with airline companies, doing some consultations, but he was really... He, and then he started a company that mainly over time became a helping center for other immigration uh, families from other countries. So this, this wasn't a moneymaker. I'll, t- I'll say that much. He did it really, they, they are very uh, good people. They took a lot of risk for other families around them. They, I mean, they have Korean friends and such, and they really took a lot of risk for them. Like for example, like renting cars out uh, under their name that they can drive to go to work because they were not citizens yet and stuff like this. And I was like, what, what happens if they get into an accident? They were like, that's bad. Like, hmm. we don't know. I was like, wow, you guys are really like stupid, I guess. I don't know. But, you know, looking back, I, I see it as a really good thing because they were trying to do good because they were fortunate enough to get the green card earlier. They were fortunate enough to have finances still come in and help them out from my grandmother's side to start up their businesses and to really do this and fund things and to buy a house with a down payment down. All these things were really things that, you know, I look back on it and I said, that, that's abundance of things that still came through for us when we even shifted it to another country. And that's very fortunate. And that got me the feeling of this abundance again, when I was in the U S over time. And I think I'm, you know, I, I'm very grateful for that. At the same time, it did is whenever I had less stuff, I felt more fortunate, I guess, because of the family bond that we have to have with the, the conversations. Okay. I want to talk about your, the connections between you, because you're both from what we can tell you studied industrial design at Pratt. What led you to go down that path of which is quite a specific, oh, first of all, actually, before you answer it, you don't, you haven't by any chance crossed paths with uh, Lucia Derespinez, have you? Yes, Lucia. Wait, wait, you're talking about like, you're talking about tabletop Lucia, like Dunkin' Donuts logo designing Lucia, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, we have. Yeah, yes. Because <laughs> she was one of our early guests on the show. Oh, wow. Wow. Awesome. Yes. Yes. 
Lucia yeah. is awesome. That's very cute. <laughs> I'll have to text her later. We're I'm supposed to be sort of going out with her uh, at some point. She said once the the lockdown ends, we're going to go around to her garden, sit and uh, spend an afternoon there. So she'll be excited to hear that we've interviewed you. So that's good. Yeah. Anyway, so so Pratt, so a journey from from wanting to be an engineer and a focus, and uh, also ambitions in art, and and Kevin with your focus. What were the events or the circumstances that led you both in that direction? Of design? Yeah. Yeah. So design. So my really came from art, like really in deep interest in art and uh, been doing it pretty much since I was a kid, since I was like really, really young. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to draw trees. But, you know, usually when you're a kid, you draw like two sticks or like a, a stick and you draw like a little cloud thing. But I was like getting super deep. I was like making branches and I was making like the, the grains of the wood and all that stuff. And they, you know, we're like in preschool or something like that. And the kids were like, what the hell? So I was like, I was a tree drawing guy. Everybody wanted me to draw trees in their drawings. So like, oh yeah, tell Kevin to draw the trees. So I'll like draw the trees and they'll draw the sun and stuff. And they color it in. And that's, that's when it really hit me. I was like, I like, I like drawing trees. And so I started drawing a lot of nature. I, I love drawing birds and I was drawing things. And over time, I guess I wanted to become an artist and, you know, went to art school and such. But it really, my, my core of design comes from, from wanting to become an artist, honestly. My whole life growing up until end of high school, I didn't even know what industrial design was. And I remember uh, I was in like this private art school called ECA, Educational Center for the Arts in New Haven. And I would go there after school hours of my normal school. I didn't take any extracurricular activities, no gym class or no, no whatever. I just went straight from school at, at noon and I would take a bus, go to New Haven, like, at the art school. And then I will spend four hours there, which is like double the time of you know, school usually ends at 2 p.m. I would spend four hours there doing uh, painting, sculpture, uh, or whatever. There's also, I did hip hop dancing, <laughs> yoga. <laughs> Uh, so like extracurricular activities to get gym credits there, but I was mainly just going there to do a lot of art. And then I was picked up by a, a, a painting professor and he started to teach me a lot about you know, how to do it well. And then I got into sculpture. And the sculpture side, I became an apprentice of one of the professors there. She said, do you want to become a sculptor? And I said, I do. And she liked my stuff and I, you know, I, got, I won some awards there and she's like, I'm going to take you on as, a, as an apprentice if you want. And she sat me down in her office and asked me a question. She's like, how much does money matter to you? And I was like, I remember I was sitting there. I was like, oh, you know, I would like to have a house and have a car and stuff and have like nice things, I guess, in the future. Um, and she's like, well, then sculpture is not for you. And I was like, oh, you know, why does this always have to happen? And my dad always has this conversation with me too. Like, why do you have to say this too? And what if you're just good? And what if you can do it? And what if you can make it? And um, She's like, well, it's going to take, you know, whatever. So does the discussion happen, right? On and on. At this point, you weren't thinking Anish Kapoor. <laughs> no, I wasn't thinking about anything. I, was, I made, you know, big sculptures. And I was really into making big abstract sculptures. And then I was making printmaking. I also dabbled with printmaking and I was doing it with this uh, professor, Karen. And wow, she became like my mom of, of the art school. And I was like, Karen, I don't know what to do. Kind of like Keith, you know, I was like, I was good at math stereotypically because I was, you know, Asian, I guess. And I just came from like a lot of crazy math, you know, routines that I learned to do over time. And I was just good at math. And then I was good at physics. And I was just like, you know, I really like making things. And I, I wanted to be an artist so bad. But there was 
really this decision, right? Engineering or art. That's really kind of a major decision that a lot of people have to make if you're creative, but if you're also having some logistical, you know, uh, brain, they, you got to make a decision. But that's what Karen was like, you should look into industrial design. I was like, oh, what's that? Started researching it. And then I was like, Karen, you, you hit it on the nail. Like that's, that's what I want to do. And started, I only applied to two schools for ID and, um, and the rest for engineering. And then, you know, got into to both. It was RISD and Pratt. I was like, you know, RISD is kind of really far out there. I think Pratt is like a good place to be. So it's, it's New York. It's, it's all about the networking. I knew that from the beginning because of friends that I was beginning to have at the art school. And art, being an artist is also just all about network. It's about who you know. And then you know a person in the gallery. And that person's going to showcase your work. So it's really, it's, I knew the networking was pretty important. And New York had the best. Okay. And Keith, your, your journey to Pratt. Uh, to Pratt. And so my road is a, a little bit windy. Um, I graduated 10 years old. I was like, I was really good at art. And I'm like, I'm going to be an artist, you know? And I actually, because my mother was, just got out of the hospital and I realized I, I never knew the story of when I started drawing. So I asked her and she said that she had, I found this book when I was like five years old that showed methodical drawing where it's like, oh, it starts with a circle, ends up with another circle, ends up with another circle. And next thing you know, seven steps later, you have Mickey Mouse. And she was like, ever since then, you never stopped. And I was like, oh, I saw this logical way to draw stuff and got really excited that, oh, you could do this with logic probably. It just like kept going on. So it was a funny story. But at 10, I was like, I want to be an artist. And then I realized that like most artists don't get famous until after they're dead. And I had a big problem with death when I was 10. So that kind of like, after crying for two days, I'm like, okay, not going to do that. That sucks. I'm going to be an architect so I can still do art and like make money. And then I read somewhere when I was 11, I don't know where I'm reading this stuff at, but I read somewhere where I was 11 that said like, you know, architects are overworked and underpaid. And I'm like, hmm, that sucks a lot. I'm really good at math and science. I'm going to be an engineer. And at 12, that's what I decided. And I went to Rutgers University when I was 18. It took me six years to get my engineering degree, I realized that like going through the Camden school system and graduating top 20 in your class doesn't mean anything in the real world because the Camden school system at the time was pretty crappy. I don't know what is going on now, but basically it took me two years in college to figure out how to learn because I realized I didn't know how to learn. I could just pick things up. But when I had to do more than pick things up, like, so my first semester I had a 0.667 was my GPA and they kicked me out of engineering. Like, didn't even give me the trial year. They kicked me out. And then I came, I was like, hey, what's up with my trial? And I was like, okay, cool. I'll take these 12 credits of classes. But also like to my credit or maybe to not to my discredit, I decided that I hated school and that I was only going to do engineering in four years instead of the mandatory five that they recommended. And so my first semester was like Calc 1, Physics, Intermediate, Spanish, Chemistry, Intro to Fortran Programming. You know, like it was pretty crazy. And I basically failed everything almost because I thought I would pass with a D because I was so committed to not take these classes again and waste time. Long story short, two years later, I'm six years later, I graduate. I work as a, I get a job as an engineer working for Rutgers University and decide this is cool. I like what I'm doing. I'm doing some energy assessments for manufacturing companies. And at some point I decided and I realized I'm like, okay, this isn't really what I want to do. And meanwhile, six months after I got my job, I got laid off. And when I tried to find a new engineering job, I applied to, remember, I applied to 300 places. I got five interviews and no job offers. And I was like, statistically speaking, the probability I should have a job right now. Let me take my resume to somebody to see what's good. And I went to the counselor at Rutgers. And I remember she said, uh, she looked at my resume. I had this like, I didn't have like an objective. I had like an, an opening visionary statement. And she read like the first like two seconds. And she was like, do you want to be an engineer? And I was like, 
what kind of dumb question? I just spent six years getting this degree, like dying down there. And you don't ask me, if, yes, I want to be an engineer. And she's like, why do you want to be an engineer? I was like, so I can get that money and buy houses and I can use that money to then like stop working all together and I can do this with it. She's like, but do you want to do engineering? And I was like, mm, maybe not. And so I had to rethink everything at that moment, you know, like, and I guess initially I thought I'd be like crash testing motorcycles or building rocket ships. And, you know, I wasn't a good enough engineer to do either of those things, you know what I'm saying? Like, and so I was like, okay, well, what do I want to do? And I'm like, hmm, well, I feel like there's this thing where like things that I can do easier than the rest of the people can do must be some sign of something I should be doing. I'm like, well, I could always draw. And I hadn't really drawn since I went to engineering school. I mean, I drew for fun. I drew like comic book covers and artwork for friends and stuff like that, but I didn't draw for real, for real. And so I was like, you know what? Like, well... I could never be an artist though. I could never like throw paint on a toilet bowl, put it in the middle of a museum and say like, this is art. You know, like it, that just didn't make any sense to me. And the thing that I loved about engineering was you took these really crazy scientific principles that also don't make much sense. And you made them do useful things for people. And I was like, useful art, fashion. I like women, women's fashion. And then that trickled down into like me working at Nordstrom as a shoe salesman, because I was like, if I'm not going to be an engineer, let me stop looking for engineering jobs. So I was, went and looked for fashion jobs. I didn't know what I was going to do. I thought I'd be a buyer maybe. And, you know, I tried to sell uh, cosmetics while I was there. And, you know, long story short, they put me in with the shoe guy because it was like, you have, you're really ambitious. And there's this guy who's managing shoes who I think would be a great mentor to you. He's like killing it. So I ended up selling shoes. And while I was there, I realized I love shoes. I'm looking for an area of fashion to go into. So I'm just going to design shoes. And FIT had the only shoe design program in the country. So I applied there, moved to New York and kind of set into the space around designing because I wanted to be, my goal was basically to like be the next Ferragamo. Wow. Yeah. That was like my entrance letter in FIT. It's so sad. It never happened. Sorry. Sorry. I lied FIT. It's another, another one of our guests uh, is involved with uh, FIT, Sharon Feldstein. Did you ever cross paths? I'm not sure. It sounds familiar, but maybe. Yeah. She was, uh, Yeah. She's got an interesting sort of story. She's Jonah Hill's mum and Beanie Feldstein, the actress. Wow, wow, so, wow. Yeah, wow. <laughs> anyway, okay. So when did you, uh, you both ended up, uh, you went from FIT and then there, from there to Pratt. Yeah, yeah. So I, I basically, I worked, I never ended up going into shoes at all. I ended up doing handbags because I realized shoes, <laughs> shoes, have to, shoes have to fit and that's ridiculously annoying. And then after selling shoes, we had to carry a size six, six and a half, seven, seven and a half, eight, eight and a half, nine, nine and a half. So like you can buy one pair of shoes. Like I make one bag, I can buy it, she can buy it. You know, so inventory control, it, it was just a much better business model than shoes were. And so I kind of got out of shoes and got into handbags and I was working at Calvin Klein for a minute. And then I went and did some technical design for a company called the Sports Sack. And then I ended up as a handbag engineer at Coach. Worked there for about two years. I loved that job. It was like one of the best jobs I ever had in my life. I love my boss. I love my team. I love the product. But then I started to realize that like we were engineering these bags. Like we had people in white lab coats testing the bags. Like if you fall off a cliff, like if you're under 150 pounds, your coach bag will save your life. You know, and if, if you have the big coach bag, we low test them up to 300 pounds, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but somehow we needed you to buy a new bag every four months to maintain our business model. And to me, it was kind of like, why are we, either we should be building six month bags or we should be building 20 year business models. And I just felt like there must be a better way 
I didn't like the business model around fashion and fast fashion was like really at its peak at that moment. And I kind of felt like there has to be a better way to use designer for humanity. And so I went to the Pratt program in industrial design. I'd met a few people there. And the way you talk about design in fashion school is like emotional. It's like, how does this collection feel? What's the inspiration? Mood boards, right? I wasn't an emotional person. So fashion was like my emotional training. But like when you talk to people at Pratt, they talk about visual relationships like a science. And that made sense to my engineering brain. And so I was like, I want to go here because I want to learn how to design and think about design in this way. And, you know, I had racked up a bunch of student debt, but I come from poverty. So it's like, can't really give me less than nothing. So in my mind, I'm like, I'll either like write them a check one day or they'll write it off, you know? And so I racked up some more debt and decided to like go into Pratt and see what I could find. In part two, we dive deep into their experience as startup founders, the challenges they faced and overcome, and their vision for the future of haptic technology, and a lot more. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.